Nice to see you all. Before I start talking, I'd like to know why you've come to such a niche seminar. Um, so any parents or families or siblings with learning disability here? Stick your hand in the air. Any professionals who work with people with learning disabilities? Sunday school teachers, church leaders, people who are aware of learning disability within the church. Great. My mother, father and sister-in-law are here because Christmas Day would just never be the same again if they'd chosen to go to the big seminar otherwise. Um, so let's start. Um, every time I speak at, um, for a TO on, uh, about this topic, people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, you should have shown us pictures of your children. We want to see pictures. So here we are. My husband, Nathaniel, you might have seen him at the OMF stand. And Tabitha behind me, Micah, um, taken a couple of years ago. Um, my husband and I lived in Bangladesh, as Ian has said, um, for several years. And uh, we had time there, time out and time back again when we went back. We lived with a lovely Bengali Muslim family for six months to get our language back up again and also to learn the culture and how to convey uh, messages um, in the way that they would understand. Um, I think one of the most important things that I learned during my time there was how to convey the message of welcome and welcoming people into my house. Because when I went to live in my own house then, the way I naturally would have welcomed Bengali people who came to my house, I might have been saying the words in Bangla, but I would have been doing it in a Northern Irish way. And that actually would have said to those people, you're not welcome. Um, I may have been saying the words, but my behaviours in that context and culture may have been conveying a very different message. And welcome is a word that we bandy around quite a lot, isn't it? I mean, how many church services have you been to? And they say, you're very welcome here. That's a word. But what action follows that welcome? Um, and welcoming somebody says how important they are to you, that they have value to you that they see you as good enough to spend time with. Um, if you look at your home, who you've had in your home, who is in your social diary for coffee or for dinner the next month. Um, if you looked on your mobile phone activity, who have you sent a message to? Who have you Facebooked in the last little while? Who do you spend time with? It says how much we value people. Several decades ago, the government moved from the shape of caring for people with learning disability within a hospital or institution style, moving them into the community. And I wonder, in our local communities, can you think of some indicators or some signs or some patterns or behaviours or facilities which would suggest to you whether a person with learning disability or a family living with someone with learning disability would be welcome in that society? Um, I need you to shout out. Um, that's quite a hard question to ask unless you're a parent like me who has lived with it and walked with it for the last lot of years because I could list out lots of things to you that actually say to me, you're not welcome here. You and your son are not welcome here. Now, it may not be saying that in words and a sign on the park gate, but that's the message I get from the public. If you think about the media, who do we have in the media who has a learning disability? Do you remember the Susan Boyle um, incident, an X Factor? She was um, held up as a entertainment because of her learning disability and actually I feel she dealt with it very very well and explained herself very very well um, there's a film out at the minute which isn't learning disability but it's a, a man who has a disability and it's, the storyline is really all about how it's okay for his girlfriend to break off the engagement because you know, it wasn't really worth her wasting her life by marrying him and spending the rest of her life with him and you know, 
I think it's you, you Before Me, I think it's called. That's the theme of it. And it's accepted in society that that was a good thing for her to do. Um, when you think of the education and health services, you may not notice, but I notice the cuts to the special needs schools and for, to the, the learning disability facilities that are being made for, for people um, all over Northern Ireland. And think of things like legal protection for people who have learning disability right from even before they're born. A friend of mine has a son who's very um, severe autism and learning disability and a charity worker came to her house one morning and as she was getting the few pounds out of her purse to put in her wee box, the charity worker was looking at her son and kind of behaving very autistically and she said, um, I take it you don't believe in abortion then? And, you know, you gasp at that. But when you look at our legal system, what does our legal system say? Down syndrome's testing is offered, has to be offered to every mother who's pregnant who goes in for their booking appointment. And if that test comes back positive, 90% of mothers will abort, terminate that pregnancy. And actually in the UK, they're allowed to terminate up to 40 weeks, whereas the baby without Down syndrome is 24 weeks. And the, the, this is going to become a, a bigger issue, and Evangel um, Evangelical Alliance is doing uh, a big move on this because um, there's a new test coming out that doesn't actually harm the baby and doesn't um, damage or wouldn't cause problems in the pregnancy. And so many more people are going to be taking this test, and so there's going to be many more terminations of pregnancy. And this is really a genocide on people with Down syndrome. We don't want them around us. Jobs and employment... Um, just, in two, in just over two years ago, the government minister said, well, you know, it's okay to lower the pay. You could pay um, people with learning disability two or three pounds an hour just to get them into work, to give them something to do every day, doing the same thing that somebody else would be doing without learning disability. Accessibility of community facilities, the autism group that I go to, we know the places where we can and can't go because it just won't work for us. Um, Transport Families we know who have said, we'll not take your child, they're too autistic. Um, coffee shops, parks, swimming pools have started their you know, autism-friendly sessions, learning disability-friendly sessions, because people don't want us, and it's too stressful for us to be with everybody. Society says to us, you're not welcome here. The Guardian newspaper in 2014 um, reported on a conference about learning disability in community, and they wrote, um, what came forward from this conference was the desire to belong, to be connected, and to forge meaningful reciprocal relationships. This was palpable. There was a resounding call for help to make friends, to meet new people, to take part in new hobbies, activities, and secure employment opportunities. It should come as no surprise that those who we support value the same things as the rest of us. But despite the physical move from long stay in hospitals to small domestic settings in local communities, most people with learning disabilities spend the majority of their time with paid carers and have few real friends. Failure to deliver on the pressing issue of integration runs the risk of replacing one form of institution with another. Society's voice beats a steady rhythm to families like mine that a child like Micah with severe learning disability is a drain on society and resources no use to society, a burden to the parents, and should be kept away from the normal. When we got the diagnosis of Micah having ASD and SLD, I entered, it felt like there was a trap door lifted and somebody pushed me through into this world that I had no idea that existed. And this is a big world. And there's a dark, murky underworld where there's not a lot of hope. So let's talk about church and welcome. 
you know, every church service, we say you're very welcome here. But I would say that there's criteria attached to that welcome. Um, if you ask any church member, minister, is it okay if I bring my child with a learning disability to church? Yes, absolutely. We welcome all kinds of people. Everybody is welcome in this church. But those are words. And when I have talked to families who have tried to go to church or who have left church because of the, they live with a learning disability, the action is very different. I have met with many, many families like myself who belong to a local church, have been committed to that church, had child with, and who has had a diagnosis of learning disability within that church. And many people have said the most painful part of their existence is a Sunday morning, trying to exist in a church. And it's not just church gathered, it's church scattered. So let's talk about church gathered. You know, perhaps you're here, perhaps um, many people here have read the, the blurb about learning disability seminar this morning. Think, well, that doesn't really apply to me. There's nobody with a learning disability in my church. Well, we need to think, why not? If you look at the special schools, they are completely oversubscribed around Belfast. The residential homes for adults with learning disability, completely oversubscribed. Health services have waiting lists years long to get services for people with learning disability. I know a man who runs, uh, who's uh, head of a, a residential community in County Down. He tells me at least twice a week there's 80-year-old parents who are caring for their 50-year-old child and they can't do it anymore, begging for a place. These people are in our communities, in our society, but they're not in our churches. And we need to start asking ourselves why. Mostly the presence of learning disability within our church comes when the, that family has a child with a learning disability the diagnosis comes either in utero or at birth or during the developmental process and either those children have families children have been asked to leave the Sunday schools families have been asked not to come back to church or they've been managed in some way that's inappropriate in the crash with the other kids the nine-year-old boy in the crash with the the two-year-olds um or we think we're doing well if we have learned not to tut-tut at the the behaviors that they have that are odd what about church scattered? Families like mine, how many invites do we get for playdates with typically developing children in our church? How many of us have a genuine friendship with an adult with learning disability? Not just because we're going to be nice to them and we feel sorry for them. My family and other families like mine have spoken about feeling like the mothers who turned up uh, to Jesus for him to bless their children and the disciples turned them away. And often we turn up every Sunday morning wanting somebody to bless our child. And we are turned away. We, we may not be turned away physically by saying, no, we don't really want you here. But we're turned away because there's nothing for our children. And they sit at the back of church with us until we get too stressed and we have to leave. And you know what Jesus' reaction was on that in Mark 10? At his disciples' behavior of turning away. He was indignant. And these families who are committed to being in church, many, it's, it, these, these are families who want to be in church. What about the families who just know it's like the soft church is like that soft play area where we can't go there. We'll not even try it. And we need to revise our theologies of what we do in church and why we do them to be able to recover the Jesus way for people with learning disabilities within our church. And I know probably whenever we speak at um, groups like this, um, people 
ask questions and say, okay, but you know, what does this look like? Tell me what to do with the little girl with Down syndrome who doesn't want to do this in Sunday school. Tell me what to do about the little boy with ADHD who's jumping up and down and can't sit down in my Sunday school class. Tell me what to do about this. And that's kind of like um, Mary Berry is standing here and you're all saying, oh, my scones and my Victoria sponge don't turn out very well. And she would say, go back to the recipe. And this morning and what Ian did yesterday was go back to the recipe. What does Jesus say churches? Where's the problems here? And then sort out the, the specific issues. I would say that one of the specific issues is that we profess a very different theology than we practice. Um, we have listened too closely to the voice of society and let a, a culture of normalcy creep into our churches. That's Tom Reynolds' phrase, a culture of normalcy. Uh, we listen to the voice of society that tells us what is of value and what is good. And we have this um, subconscious criteria of just what is normal and what is not normal. Um, and it's often the criteria are appearance and function and value and use, entertainment purposes, entertainment value. And we set these up as a normal and we strive to achieve them. And Glenn Harris spoke about our identity and being in Christ and often whenever we get to peel back our identity, we realize, well, it's not in Christ. Actually, we're chasing after these things. Um, and there's a danger when we talk about learning, including disability, because we make it into a ministry. I don't actually like the phrase disability ministry, because that's a ministry to them that is other. If disability ministry is done well, it won't even be a thing. There will be no title to it. It will just be church. Um, or... We, we have this culture in our churches where people are scared to talk about the messiness in people's lives because we have, we have this veneer of normal going on. And, you know, I'm, I'm so used to in our church people's kids coming up to them and saying, well, why does Micah still wear a nappy? Or why, why does he cry a lot? Or why does he, um, you know, throw things? And the mums go, shh, 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 you know, don't talk about it, don't talk about it. But that is them saying, you know, they have mass. Don't mention their mass. We don't have mass. Jesus told a parable that set forth the, the pattern for kingdom communities. And it was the host giving a party. And he sent it out to the, the criteria of the normal. And they didn't want to come. And he said, right, let's peel back our criteria. Let them go out. Go out and bring in those who are outside this set criteria. Luke, especially in his gospel, depicts the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ being for people who are outside of the normal the tax collectors, the sinful, the immoral, the women, the children, the Gentiles and the poor. And if the gospel is inclusive, so too should our churches be inclusive. Jesus, who aligned himself with the marginalized and the outsider, he is like a host in our churches. And he's asked us to be the co-hosts of a great party of grace, to go out and bring people in. I hosted a party for my mum's 60th about two years ago and it meant I had to go through her address book secretly and her phone book and get numbers and ask people, you know, who does she spend time with at this period of her life? Who were her friends? And when I made the list, reading down, I thought, I don't know some of these people. Some of them I know I don't like. And, you know, it's, I don't know if I really want to spend that much money on these people. I don't know and I don't like and spend the evening with them. But the party was not for me. The party was for my mum. 
And so she was at the head of the table. And it was for her that they were invited, not for me. And if you look at our church congregations, how many of the people represent the marginalized of the communities that we live in? If you look at your diaries and go down your phones, how keen are we to include the marginalized in society? In a book called A Place Called Acceptance, the author surveyed a group of parents of children with disability. One question asked to the parents was, if you could create a dream church, how would that church meet your specific needs as a parent or a family member of a child with disability? 76.7% said a church would do this by having a welcoming attitude. Only 16% said by making the church accessible and coming up with some program that would include my child. So the problem isn't coming up with a wonderful uh, educational junior church, Sunday school, Bible teaching program that meets my autistic child's needs. The problem is that the attitude that we have in our churches isn't welcoming to those beyond who behave like us, who do things like us, who can do the things that we've done for years. So let's look a bit closer at this. Um, That's the, the cult of normalcy, Tom Reynolds. We need to break out of that cult of what is normal to a theology and a culture of we are all broken, but we all live under grace, redeeming grace. Yeah, the gospel is inclusive. So let's look at this passage, Mark 10, Bartimaeus. Um, We've all heard it. I remember vividly the little flannel graph picture Sunday school that they have before iPads and PowerPoint of Bartimaeus. Um, We're going to look a little bit closer about this. and I need to warm up because I need a bit of interaction here. Um, So let's look at this passage in context, Mark chapter 10. Jesus has been traveling. He's been predicting his death to the disciples. He's passed through Jericho City, and he's leaving again. Before he got to Jericho City, the mothers came to him. The disciples turned them away, and he rebuked them. Then James and John, I think this is probably my my favorite passage in the Gospels, James and John come to him, and they want the positions of greatness and power. And then Bartimaeus is healed. So the context is Jericho City, coming out the back gates. First, Jericho is a prominent city in a fertile area of the desert. Beggars are lined up outside the city because they're not allowed inside. And as people, they hear people coming, they'll wail and they'll, they'll hit their sticks on the ground to get attention, hoping that somebody will drop a coin in their cloaks. So I'm going to read through the passage twice. And I want you to choose a character here. You could be Bartimaeus. You could be the crowds. You could be Jesus with the disciples. And imagine this in your head as if you are them and this is the situation. Often we read this story and our focus is the healing. But let's unpack the whole context of the story and the the real issues that are going on um, with each individual. So I'll read through this and then we'll talk about it. So they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? 
The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I'll read that again. You can do a bit more thinking. They came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. He is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So, some questions. There's Bartimaeus. Crowd. Jesus, healing. So, Bartimaeus. Shout out. Don't be afraid. No right and wrong answers. So, where is he sitting? Who is he with? And what does this say about his role in society? On the edge of the crowd... With others who are marginalized, they belong together. He's at the roadside, not a particularly nice place to be. He's begging. That's what he does every day, probably. In Bangladesh, I remember seeing um, little van loads of people coming in the city of Dhaka, bringing out the, the crippled, the lame people to beg, kind of like shiploads of them sat there. Yeah. Um, What does that say about his role in society? He's marginalized, doesn't belong in the inside. Socially, morally, you remember in John chapter 9, the disciples asked, was it this man who sinned? Well, he's blind, it's his fault. Or was it his parents' fault? None of our responsibility. He belongs there. Must have done something. Spiritually underqualified, There was a culture um, from a verse in Leviticus that um, no blind or lame were to approach the temple to make sacrifices. So he wasn't allowed to sacrifice. He was unclean. Um, Okay. He was also very dependent on others for his survival. He depended on people dropping coins into his cloak. Um, That's how he survived. Didn't have any independence. Um... So how does he interact with Jesus throughout the episode? What does he ask Jesus for? What's his tone? Demanding. Yeah, he's shouting out. So he's sitting there. You know, here's another person passing. The hustle's a bit louder this time. What's going on? Someone says Jesus of Nazareth is here. And he is making sure that he gets the attention of Jesus. He must have heard something about Jesus of Nazareth healing. He is making sure that he gets the attention of Jesus despite what other people tell him. And how is his faith expressed? Jesus said, your faith has made you well. How does he express what faith he had? 
Yeah, he must have heard of him. Um, knew that he had that. People told him, Jesus of Nazareth, the passage said. And how does he address Jesus? Son of David. There's a messianic title there. He is recognizing that he is um, God incarnate in some form. The Messiah has come. Um, Describe the progression from his exclusion to his inclusion. When would you say in this passage he's actually fully included? Okay. Okay, so he's first of all marginalized, excluded. He's still being marginalized and excluded when he shouts out. And then Jesus changes things. He's a bit of a game changer here. And there start he's giving him attention. Kind of wonder about the crowds here. We'll talk about the crowds um, in the next section. Um, I would probably say he's not fully included until he's healed and he joins and follows. But there's a movement here. There's a progression here. Um, okay, we, we'll, we'll come back to all of this. Okay, the crowds. Were they aware of his needs? They knew he was blind, probably. How may they have interacted with him in the past? Given him money? Yep, the law said I give you money, I'll give you money. Done my bit. Mm-hmm. Ignored, yeah. Yep. And why is that? They're so detached from him. He's nothing to do. They don't care. He's nothing to do with them. It's not their responsibility. And there's a medical model of learning disability that says that the person with learning disability, we treat them. We do this for them. They're not our responsibility, really. We'll do it. There's a one-way arrow. And this is exactly what the crowds may have done in the past. This is, this is, this is how it works. Um... Why do you think they told him to be quiet? Yeah, they were maybe discussing divorce like they were at the start and the law at the start of the the chapter. They were discussing high-level things. They had an agenda for Jesus to be doing things and Jesus didn't fit in with our agenda. This man didn't fit in with our agenda and they had something else. Yeah, Jesus is a busy man. Come on, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to put the kingdom in power here. Jesus doesn't have time to stop and talk to beggars. He's not worthy. People have suggested perhaps they just they wanted to hear Jesus' words and he was shouting. Kind of like my son in the back of church on a Sunday morning. Be quiet. Um, yep. Are the disciples... Oh, by telling him to be quiet, how are they augmenting his disability? So he's blind. They want him to be mute. They're adding to his disability. He can't see, but they have given him, the culture has given him more disability, a social disability, a spiritual disability, a moral disability. And now they're giving him another disability where he can't have an opinion or a voice to interact. Are the disciples saying anything? And bear in mind, Jesus has rebuked them twice in recent days for rejecting people on the edge. We don't see the disciples speaking up here. They're not learning their lesson very quickly. At what point did the crowd's behaviour towards Bartimaeus change? Let's look at that bit. Jesus stopped. 
Yeah, we say it was after he was healed that they, they fully changed their behavior. Yeah. Initially, they didn't want to listen to him. They didn't want him to speak. Jesus stopped and showed that he was actually going to give him some attention. But what does Jesus tell them to do? Call him. We'll, talk, we'll look at this. And How did Jesus interact with this man compared to the crowd? What did Jesus do? Verbs. He stopped. He was on the most important mission. He was about to go to Jerusalem in the next chapter. But he stopped for one person. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus interested in this one person, this one child, this one lady, this one man. Jesus cares about individuals, not about labels. So he stopped. And he listened. Jesus could have just gone, oh, yeah, you're blind. Yeah, okay, now you can see. But how did he interact with the man? Yeah, what do you want me to do for you? And interesting that Jesus had asked that question in the last section of that chapter to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And they're saying, do you know, when your kingdom comes, give us the positions of power. We're the men for it. We can do it. We'll do that for you, Jesus. And this man is saying, have mercy on me. I'd like to be able to see again. And I wonder when Jesus asked that question, did that stick in James and John's hearts? The same question, with different responses. Um, what was the significance that Jesus didn't go to where the man was, but he brought the man into the center? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, he brings them where everybody, the accepted people are. That's right. And that not only has value for the man, but it has value for the disciples and the crowd to be standing shoulder to shoulder with this man, rather than that man being over there and Jesus doing something to that man. He's one of them. He's among them. What's the significance of Jesus telling the disciples to call the man? He's enforcing interaction. He could have just done it himself. But he's giving them responsibility as the co-hosts of his party of grace. Call that man. And that's when their attitude starts to change. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And I want to be a bit cheeky and talk about the parents here. It's mentioned Bartimaeus, that actually means son of Timaeus, um, but Timaeus isn't really unpacked for us here. I want to read from John chapter 9 and be a bit cheeky and steal another incident where Jesus healed a blind man, um, where the blind man had been healed. Um, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We don't know that that this is our son and that he was born blind. Or we know that this is our son and he was born blind, but how he sees now, we have no idea. And nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. 
His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So the parents in this situation, how would their sons being born blind have affected them in this culture and society? Shame, yeah. And in many countries in the world, any kind of disability, there's a level of shame attached. And um, often people are hidden away, um, not to be shamed in public. Yeah, definitely a, a feeling of shame there. Um, he was the oldest. We know he was the oldest son, Bartimaeus. That's the title given to the oldest son in that culture. And he was the one supposed to take care of them. But they are taking care of him to their dying day. Um, and I, if Micah was somehow healed by this, a man of faith, and some conservative church leaders came to me and said, I'm not telling you about my theology of healing, by the way, but imagine this scenario. If some conservative church leaders came to me and said, did somebody lay hands on him? Did you get somebody to pray for him? Why did you do that? That's against our theology. I would be saying, shut up. He is healed. God has somehow healed this little boy. Do you not see? There's no one more protective than a, child, a mother of a child with special needs. And if you're a mother in a park who's made a comment or a child in a, in a soft play area who has done something to my child, or if you're the head of the education authority who's not providing services for my child, I am on your case. I am a lioness prowling to protect my son. But these parents, I just don't understand. They are not protecting their son here. They're very vulnerable son. So what has happened in their life to put them in this place where they no longer feel the need to want to protect their son? They're handing him over to the religious leaders saying, don't ask us, don't ask us to make that theological statement that you're looking for so that you can persecute us. Ask him. They're putting their son on the firing line here. And I wonder why. They're, they're fearful of what the religious people are saying. Exactly. Society, that rhythm I talked about at the start, has beat that rhythm so long and so hard into their hearts that they do not see that their child has any value or any purpose. That child is a millstone around their necks. And they may love their child. They may be living with grief. But there is such a drain. And that's all that they see their child as at this stage. And in that culture. And as I meet parents, I see many parents along the way. Who go into ruts of this. Not seeing their child as any value. They love their children. But they see that the learning disability consumes who their child is. And they see learning disability and challenging behavior when they see their, when they see their child. And the voice of the church needs to be saying something very, very different to these families. The voice of the church needs to be speaking louder than that drumbeat that society beats. And not just in words, but in action. And so I want to go back to that recipe of what makes this work in churches. And I think we need a revised theology of different parts of um, what it means to, to be church, what it means to be human, what it means to have value and be in relationship with God. So what does it mean to be human? 
I think perhaps in this Bartimaeus episode, um, the most important breakthrough was that Jesus gave this man dignity. He gave him a voice. He brought him into the middle and he listened. He acknowledged his disability. He didn't pretend he didn't have a disability and he was just the same. He brought him into the middle, but he restored his value with the disability. And when the children brought their mothers to Je- when the mothers brought their children to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, "Right, you know, disciples, take the kids away for a minute. I'm just going to speak to the mothers." Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed the children. And so, mothers like me, when we go to churches, the way to bless me is to bless my child. Often, my pastoral care has been it's a really heavy load you carry from my church leadership from people who care for me pastorally. I don't know how you do it. I hear most Sundays. I don't know how you do it. And that's my pastoral care. Which doesn't point me to how Jesus sees my son. It points me to how society sees my son and reinforces that negative um, value. My son is not autism. He's not challenging behaviours. He's a little boy. He's a person. God knit him together in my womb. And in his sovereignty, he somehow, I don't know why, allowed autism to enter into that person. And we accept this gift of a son. It's a bit different to the gift that we expected. Micah has preferences. He has familiar people. He has likes and dislikes, and he'll let you know about them. He has experiences that he enjoys. He also doesn't understand the way the world works. He has very complex needs, very challenging behaviors at times, and he needs constant, long-haul supervision. You can't take your eyes off him for a minute. But what gives Mike a value? What gives anybody value? The image of God in someone. And the image of God perhaps is the one of the most commonly used phrases in our Christian world when we talk about this. But it's the least understood. And if we really understood the image of God in its context, and we don't really have time to go into the historical context of that phrase we would be absolutely outraged at how other people on the margins are treated. But the image of God says there's some kind of correlation between me and God. So when we understand something about who God is, we understand a little bit more about ourselves. And when we understand about something about who we are, we can understand something about who God is. The image of God in us gives us purpose in the world. And in all things, I am first and foremostly an image bearer. A redeemed image bearer, even better. And Micah is first and foremost an image bearer. But traditionally, people or culture and our Christian teaching has denied him the image of God. Maybe not so much in in words and theology, but in teaching. So my daughter a couple of years ago went through um, junior church um, teaching on what it means to have the image of God in us. And the topics were, you could probably guess what they were. Creativity, if you turn to your systematic theology book, this is what it will tell you. Creativity, rationality and logical thinking, relationality, being able to relate to people, interact, level of independence and ability, productivity and order. And then I had to question this with Tabitha because all of those things do not relate to my son. And often we start with, with this image of God and we move it, the, the slider goes that way. So here's the image of God in us. And we are typically developing, TD, typically developing. And as the severity of the learning disability moves down to moderate, mild learning disability, you know, people can function 
kind of like us, typical developing people. And then more severe learning disability. And then a very more, a more profound and multiple learning disability. And that's how we see it, that somehow the image of God is diminished as it goes down that slider. So that when you see a child like Micah, you kind of think, quite sure where the image of God is in him. Perhaps we need to start having two ideas when we think of disability of the image of God. The first one, yes, because there is creativity and logical thinking, rationality um, that Micah doesn't display so easily that is part of what it means to bear the image of God. But there are also other things. And when I think of the image of God starting down at the other end, somebody with profound and multiple learning disabilities and severe and working up this way. I'm up here with typically developing. And I know my mind and my heart. I know the facade that I put on. I know the ability of people like me and me to manipulate people in situations. I know the pretense that I can put on. That people with um, more severe learning disabilities don't see the need to put on. They don't put on those... That they don't behave like, like we do. Sinful behavior can sometimes warp that. Do you see what I'm saying here? The image of God looks very different in those people. And when I see people with severe learning disability who in this work groups come up to me and say, I, I don't really like you today. There's an honesty there. I know exactly where I am with them. That's fine. You don't like me today. I don't like lots of people today, but I pretend I do. Every one of us is a cracked mirror. Not one of us is a perfect mirror that reflects God perfectly. We all have cracks. The problem comes in our churches when we set up criteria for which cracks are okay and which cracks are not. Or we, we cover over our cracks and pretend there are no cracks. Often we're so oblivious to ourselves and our brokenness. Or we cover it up. And we need to move from seeing disability as an abnormal part of our normal world to a normal part of an abnormal world. Secondly, our understanding of God and the Genesis passages of the image of God. And what he does, he's powerful, he works unilaterally, he's removed, splendid independence, all that control, dominance. When you read these passages again um, in the light of disability, it also raises questions. And... Actually, if you unpack those Genesis passages, God works in a community of Trinity. He works the three, let us create. I, have, I like baking. Tabitha loves baking with me. And she loves to ice the cakes. And if I'm doing it for someone else, I don't say, let us bake. I say, you can have the burnt ones, but I'm icing the nice ones. God gives creation over, himself over in creation to a vulnerability into a system which creates of itself, of its own power, of its own organic nature of reproducing. He enters into a willing dependence on others and on elements of creation to create, rather than dominating um, creation in his splendid isolation. God created a variety of plants and animals. There's not one right way to be a flower. And he loves every part of creation into being. And when I think of and the image of God in Micah, I need to think broader than the typical teaching that the church gives. My daughter is the best example um, to me at seeing Micah as a person of value in his own right. Um, when we started school in September, we took a picture of her and she said, I'm going into P1 and when I grow up, I'm going to be a baker like mummy. 
And the next day, Micah started P4, and I didn't take a picture, and she was horrified. Take a picture of Micah. So I took a picture of Micah, and I wrote, Micah's going into P4. But you didn't say what job he's going to have when he grows up. And I thought, right, we're going to have to have a conversation. You know, she's going to want him to be a doctor, a rocket scientist, or, you know, a vet of a dinosaur or something. And we're going to have a conversation how Micah probably will be living with us and won't be able to have a job. And I said, well, what job do you think Micah would do when he grows up? Well, Micah, write this moment. Micah is going into P4, and when he grows up, he will be my children's uncle. In her head, she knew he can't do these things. But he's still a person, and this is who he's going to be. Let's talk about faith and faith development. In this context, whose faith was developed? Bartimaeus's? He already had faith. His faith made him well. Whose faith and practice of faith was Jesus challenging? Who changed in this situation? The crowds. And often we think of disability ministry as doing something to the disabled, for the disabled. And actually when we engage, with ch- when churches engage with um, d- people who are disabled and with intellectual and learning disability, it's not us, it's not them who change. It's us, and we change for the better. What is faith? Is faith an intellectual assent to some creeds and doctrines? Faith as Jesus talks about, faith is a relationship. It's a coming to, a meeting with, a running towards and launching yourself onto um, this person. It's a relational thing. And that also is linked to the image of God. Um, and if Micah is created in the image of God, then he can know God and know Jesus in some way. It might not look the same for me as for him. But we believe that in some way he has a spirit and a soul. And Ian talked a lot about this in in his seminar. He can know Jesus and know God. But if I ask any church leader, do you think my son can know God? Yes, absolutely. But if you're looking at the input, the spiritual input given from my church into Micah's life, the answer is no. There's no spiritual input given into Micah and children like him. How do we nurture faith? And this is the, how I see value of having people with disability brought among us. Um, our faith development is very word-based, and rightly so. The faith arrow between me and God doesn't just happen. It happens based on something that Jesus, our God has revealed himself, revealed himself in history that's recorded in scripture. The Spirit uses that in bringing us into relationship and experiencing God. We use the word capital W, to know God. And we present the word, but we do so using very abstract concepts. And we also use the word very unilaterally. The pastor stands at the front and gives it down in one arrow. And sometimes in different church contexts and friendships, that arrow will kind of pass among people as you talk about what that meant for you, for the pastor to to say that or from the Bible. But oftentimes we just apply it individually. Uh, Very little energy is spent in exploring how the Bible can be opened to people with learning disability. And there's many practical things that you can do. And at the end, I can point you to people and organizations who can help with that. But how do people with no words engage in a faith which is largely accessed through the word, in words, in abstract concepts? And I think that having people with disability and learning disability and including them and being aware of them 
raises the bar for faith development in the whole body. I read a quote, I can't remember where it's from, it's a good one, um, based on Jesus' comment, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, in the West, we're so consumed with being fed from the word, and yet we're being fed to a much higher level than our obedience. We are being fed to a much higher level than our obedience. We love conferences like this. We love getting the new books. We still in Northern Ireland go to church twice on a Sunday. Give me more sermons. We're fed to obey, not fed to know. And that was the Great Commission. Teach them to obey. Teach them to do everything I've commanded, not teach them to know it. And churches should be communities where kingdom values are held up and proclaimed and there should be an accountability and a culture that reflects what is being preached. So the pastor shouldn't just preach, you should love your neighbor, as Jesus said. There should be a community of making sure that that neighbor is being loved, whether he has autism or not. Micah doesn't know the word love, but he understands it when he sees it. He knows the people who give it to him and he runs to them. He doesn't know the word patience, but he's definitely a lot more settled with people who show it to him. And what if in an effort to include people like Micah in our church congregations, we actually focused on what words are given out to us, but how we're responding to them, to people, because that's what they see and that's what they hear. When everybody in our churches dresses like us, and behaves like us and talks at the level that we talk and does the things that they do, the things we want to do, and there's nothing to force that, that faith development on us because there's no iron sharpening iron. I studied theology modules as an undergrad. I went to Bible college and did a master's in theology. I worked in a Muslim country, a developing country, and you don't get holier than that, you know? That was a joke. (laughs) (laughs) But nothing has brought me into a steeper curve of discipleship and changing my behavior than having a child with autism. And we need to be creating church communities where it's not just knowledge in our head, but it's applied in under heat, under pressure. And by bringing people who are so different to us among us, there's the heat and there's the pressure. It also widens the scope for faith development in the body to have people who are behaving very differently to the norm among us and around us on a Sunday we find that having Micah in our family has focused us and has focused my daughter's development on the eternal. Tabitha talks regularly about heaven. Whenever Micah's um, in a difficult stage, she'll refer to heaven automatically by default. She says she used to pray that his autism would go away, but now she prays that people will be kind to him. She said to me one day, when I go to heaven, I won't say cheeky things anymore. Will you be happy? I said, yes. She says, but when Micah goes to heaven, he'll speak. He will say things. And he'll say, Tabitha, what a great sister you've been. (laughs) She said one day, Micah does naughtiness because of his autism. I do naughtiness because there's sin in my heart. But we both need Jesus to be our friend and change us. It fits in with her world because she has grown up knowing it and has filtered her life through it. And when people with learning disability and such complex needs aren't among us and around us in churches, we need need their filter to help us have a deeper and greater aspect of faith and um, spirituality. 
in Sunday school, we're told so many stories about Jesus healing and doing things, wonderful things. And then we had our 20s and life doesn't go the way we think it should. And we have this crisis of faith. Well, why doesn't Jesus take it away from us? By having people who are so visibly broken among us helps us remember that life is broken. Lower your expectations. And the body of church, or the body of Christ, the church. We've talked about inclusion, and all the biblical imagery of a church is inclusive. It's stones building uh, the, the building. Um, it's the, the body, the different parts. It's the family of God. It's not one block, a monocultural thing. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's a, a scenario going on in the church, and Paul writes, it's like the eye is saying, I don't belong to this body because I'm not an ear. And the hand says, well, I don't belong to this body because I'm not a foot. And they had been made to feel that because they, didn't, they weren't normal, they didn't belong. And this is rife in our churches, especially for people with learning disability. They are being made to feel that they do not belong. And what's written here in 1 Corinthians Those that seem to be weak are indispensable to you. You cannot do without these people. And surely in society, the people with the most profound learning disability are perhaps one of the weakest. And in our churches, we cannot do without them among us. Because they have so much to teach us. They seem to be weak, but they're not. And they're not weak in God's family. It's important to acknowledge that People with learning disability are part of the body. People often come to us and say, well, you know, how can we make them part of the body? We say, well, they are part of the body. It's not a matter of making them part of the body. They are part of the body. And we've asked, what point did Bartimaeus become part of that body? I think it was after his healing. And he was accepted into the group. And we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. Um, but disability is a prophetic pointer. It's a mirror that holds up who we really are and how we're living out um, the teachings of Jesus. And when we, come, when we come shoulder to shoulder with people with learning disability, like the disciples with the child brought among them, like uh, Bartimaeus, um, we kind of learn about ourselves. We learn that we may not be disabled, but we are not abled. Um, Henry Nouwen is a wonderful example of this. Henry Nouwen was a Harvard lecturer, world-renowned scholar, and um, in great demand. But he went through a spiritual crisis and gave it all up to go and care for a man with very profound learning disability in a home. And he went through a real spiritual transformation. He said, you know, Adam couldn't walk, but I was running around trying to please people all day long. Adam couldn't talk, but I was speaking and saying way too much. What I said hurt people. And he realized that as he cared for Adam, he was becoming like Adam. He had nothing to be proud of, neither had I. He was completely empty, so was I. He needed full-time attention, so did I. I found myself resisting this becoming like Adam, and I didn't want to be dependent and weak. I didn't want to be so needy. Somewhere, though, I realized that Adam's way, the way of radical vulnerability, was the way of Jesus. And when we see our commonality with people who are so needy, we have such a visible um, need. We start to see ourselves on our own need that we hide and cover over. 
And only then when we realize our need and our need of the gospel and our need of transformation, can the Jesus way for churches be rolled out. You coming up in? Yeah. That the church must be convinced that in our weakness, we're unable to contribute anything to the gospel. We learn a greater love of the gospel by having people who have such needs. We remember we have needs. Tim Chester in Total Church says it's highly countercultural um, and counterintuitive to believe that power is made perfect in weakness. And we in our churches and our church cultures are so entrenched in the world's value system that we may say it or preach it, but we don't believe it. What our church programs and cultures speak is that, um, is that we believe God will use the powerful, the stylish and trendy, the desirable, the high-tech, the entertaining and the acceptable to, to society. But he does not, and we need a radical change of perspective. We'll talk a little bit about healing just before um, we close. Um, because you say, yes, well, Bartimaeus was included after he was healed. So where's healing? Where's healing for Micah today? And in John chapter 9, um, Jesus says, God's glory is shown in this man because he was born blind. But he was healed. Where's God's glory shown when there is no healing? And here's Micah's list of needs. He's got ASD, SLD, challenging behaviors, different disorders, social isolation, no spiritual capacity, no value purpose. There's stress in, in um, us and him, grief, not joy. Practical logistical challenges. Siblings have needs. Marriages are under strain. We have a fear for his future. Who cares for him when we're gone and can't do it anymore? We fight with the systems constantly. And if churches were being churches, if churches were behaving like Jesus that stopped and asked people where their needs are, and these lists came out, we can't take away these things. These are the things that remain. But if churches were being churches the Jesus way, and if learning disability was genuinely included, all those other things would disappear. Um, you know, I, I spent hours on the phone writing letters um, to the medical systems and the education systems. Could somebody enter into somebody's world and help them do that? No spiritual capacity? Then you approach that child who's sitting at the back of the church with an iPad, or there's no room for in, in the Sunday school, or sitting playing with cars, and you make that um, journey with that family and child to have a spiritual input. Make sure their peers are aware of them, that they're welcome and included. Invite them over to your house so they're not socially isolated. Find value in them. Look hard to find value. I had two conversations with mums in my church who had kids Micah's age. One of them was, um, oh, I was going to invite him to the birthday party, but... Um, you know, he can't speak or play like my kids, so I didn't really see the point. And two weeks later, somebody said to me, I heard Michael loves swimming. Do you think we could go swimming together? Because my daughter's terrified of water, and I thought if she saw him jump in, that would really help her. She looked hard to find something. And she encouraged her children to have a genuine friendship with Michael, not just feel sorry for the little autistic boy who's the same age as you. Churches should be creating safe spaces for families like mine. And that is the Jesus way. I left grief up there because there's always going to be grief. There's a loss. It's not what we expected. The child is not, Micah is not what we expected when we were pregnant. But churches need to remind me that we, don't, we are not like those who grieve without hope. We grieve with hope for when Jesus comes and the kingdom comes in full. And we grieve in hope because the kingdom has come now and can transform us now.